good singing this morning. You may be seated. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to John chapter 17. We have preached throughout this year a series of what is messages. We started with what is a pastor on the Sunday that Zach was commissioned uh, as a pastor. Then we looked on Mother's Day at what is a woman. On Memorial Day, we looked at what is a soldier. On Father's Day, we looked at what is a man. The The Sunday after that, we looked at what is a child. On the 4th of July, we looked at what is a nation, biblically. Now we come to our last in the series, and that is what is a church. Let's read together in John 17. If you've been here for the 15 years that we're celebrating this morning of our anniversary, then you know that at least 13 of the 15 years I've preached out of this. The first message I ever preached as a pastor here at the church when I planted it uh, 15 years ago, Thursday, this last Thursday, uh, was from this particular passage. John 17 is my favorite chapter in all of the Bible. Uh, I'll do a little of explaining of that this morning in the introduction, then we'll jump into the message today. Begin reading in verse number 9 of John 17. Jesus is praying, and He's saying to His Father, I pray for them. The them here, by the way, is us. Well, particularly and directly the apostles who were the first church, but we're going to find that we, by extension, are brought into this prayer by our great high priest, Jesus Christ. I pray not for the world, but for them which Thou hast given me, for they are, they are Thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's speaking here of Judas Iscariot. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone. If verse 20 is not underlined in your Bible, it should be. Jesus himself is literally praying for us this morning in this verse. That's what verse 20 is. Neither pray I for these alone, those that were present with Him, but for them also which shall believe on Me through their word, or through their preaching, their declarations, that they all may be one. As Thou, Father, art in Me, and I in Thee, that they also may be one in Us, that the world may believe that Thou hast sent Me, and the glory which Thou gavest Me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, help us, I pray this morning. As we come to looking at what a church is, we are looking literally into a mirror. May we understand what we must be. We live in a world filled with 
cheap Christianity, lazy Christianity, churches that are not churches. And so we do well this morning to pay attention. Whatever modicum of success we might have had through your Holy Spirit these 15 years, growing from two people to what we are today, will be gone if we forget what we're supposed to be. Help us always to hold dear to you. Bless, I pray in this time, in Jesus' name, amen. Throughout our 15 years, I have preached dozens, and I mean dozens, of messages on the church. I've preached on the church's anatomy, the church's autonomy, the church's associations, the church's affiliations, the church's assembly, and the church's activity. In fact, each of those words themselves, many of them, were sermon series about what we are supposed to be. I've preached on the church being the center of God's glory, the gospel, and the place where God's grace resides in the present day. I've preached on the church and worship, the church and work, the church and the witness that we are supposed to have in the world. At other anniversaries, I have preached on the priority that we must hold in this place on the relationship we have with God and not on the religious practices that most churches have. The point that I try to make on this Sunday is church is important. Ecclesiology, or the doctrine of the church, is an essential truth that must be taught so that we might understand why we're here. We do not come to this place because it's a great social environment. It's not a club. This is a church, and there's something different about it. The problem that we see in our modern world is church has been dumbed down by the entertainment and the seeker-sensitive movement to where we just want to make you happy. I'm going to talk about this morning, this point in a few minutes. My job is not to make you happy. Well, you made it 15 years, bub. Good luck. You're out. Maybe, but I hope that's not the heart of us as a people. Fifteen years ago, I preached my first message right here from this passage in John chapter number 17. I had a little bit more hair, but as my wife told me this morning, I still have the same suit. This is the very suit I wore. I mean, 15 years. I'm doing great this morning. It is my favorite chapter in all of the Bible. In this chapter, we find Jesus, our great high priest, praying. It is a window into the divine mind of God. It is a window for us to see the divine intentions that God has for those of us who believe in Him in this church age, this age of grace. Jesus is praying for us. So let's take a few moments in the introduction here to zero in on a few statements that I think are helpful to define Christ's purpose in the prayer, and then we'll see the pattern that we'll study this morning in our three main points. First, look in verse number 10 of John 17. The Bible there says, And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Can I tell you this morning, Jesus Christ wants to be glorified by what is this body, the church. Any church worth their salt, they want to glorify, that is to elevate and lift up the name of Jesus Christ. Not of a preacher, not of a form of worship, but just and only the name of Jesus Christ. 
Verse number 17, he says, sanctify them through thy truth. So he says, I'm glorified in them. But he asks that we as a body, we as people, would be sanctified, that is set apart. And we're only set apart through this book. Do thy truth. In verse 18, he says this, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them, the church, out into the world. In verses 22 and 23, we find Jesus says, And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. In other words, the glorious nature that was his as he walked this earth in human form can be and ought to be ours. He says that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. Why? That the world may know. Our purpose is to hold forth the name of Jesus so that the world might know there is hope. That there is help. It is not found in psychology. It's not found in pharmacology. It is found only in the Spirit of God who indwells you at the moment of salvation. That's where help comes from. So I put in your notes, the church is to glorify both the nature and the name of Jesus Christ. Christ entrusted the unveiling of the mystery that is the church to the apostles, especially the Apostle Paul. So to understand what a church is, we now turn to the Apostle Paul and then later to the Apostle John to understand what is a church. First, in our outlines this morning, the church is Christ's body. There is nothing new that you will hear today. Now, some of you just said, oh, good. Off we go. I'm going to rest up. There is nothing new that I'm going to tell you today, but may I say, sometimes it's good to just be reminded of the old truth. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 27, now ye are the body. That's pretty specific. Speaking to the carnal Christians at Corinth, he said, Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular, or individually, you are the members of that body. You make it up. When Jesus ascended into heaven, the church was left to accomplish His work as His body on this earth. The Holy Spirit works through the believers who are to be part of His body. Only the church is called Christ's body. There is no college, there is no institution, there is no denomination that is called Christ's body except for the church and the church alone. There is much theological discussion about the body of Christ universal and the body of Christ local. The simple truth is that where we, are, we only can assemble locally today. Denominations are not the church. And the only church that attempts the universal church concept is the Catholic, which literally is universal church. The word Catholic is what it means. Their doctrine and their dogma is so anti-biblical and untrue that they cannot be the New Testament church. So the only church that we can see is that which is made up locally of an assembly of people like us. So I can rightly say this morning, ye, members of bluegrass, are the body. I am right to say that from the Word of God. In other words, if Jesus Christ were to set foot in central Kentucky this morning, particularly if he were to walk into the outskirts of Georgetown, we must ask ourselves, what would he do if he walked through our city? You say, I I don't know. Well, the Bible tells us what he would do, and what we should do as his body is exactly what he would do. 
When we find that we are his body, it changes how we live our lives. It's not just getting gussied up on a Sunday morning and coming in here and smiling for a while so the pastor doesn't know what your sins are or that you can fake it until you make it. No, it is you are his body everywhere you go. Wherever your body moves, the body of Christ goes with you. We are his body. We are Christ's hands, we are Christ's heart, we are Christ's feet. Since this is so, we should understand then how this body is, letter A, formed. In Matthew 16 and verse 18, Christ planted His church upon Him, the foundation, the rock. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit empowers Christ's church. So if you would turn over to Acts chapter number 2 this morning, I want to look at a couple verses for us so that we understand how the body of Christ is actually formed in the present age. I put these three notes underneath Acts 2 in your notes so that you can find them for yourself in the days ahead if you want to prove this to be true. We'll pick up our reading in Acts chapter 2 and in verse 21. Here's what the Bible says. And it shall come to pass. Peter is preaching here. The day of Pentecost has come. The falling of the Holy Spirit is set upon them. And they go out and begin to preach in known languages for those Jews of the diaspora who come to them can understand. And he's preaching and he says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be what? That's simple. So I put the first in your notes. The formation of the body begins with belief in Christ alone for salvation. We keep reading in verse 22, ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. In other words, God was not surprised what happened to Jesus. Jesus wasn't surprised as to what happened to him. He says, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that it should be holden of it. In other words, death cannot contain eternal life. What Peter does is he begins to preach the only message a church should be concerned with, and that is Jesus Christ will save you from your sins. That's it. You want to be part of the body? Get saved. You say, am I immediately into the body at that point? Well, keep reading. If we were to go through verses 25 through 31, we would find a reference to Psalm 16, a prophecy of David about who Jesus Christ was going to be. But pick up again in verse 32. Peter's still preaching, still in the same venue, still in the same spot. The first message, if you will, from the first preacher not named Jesus of the church. And it says this, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. In other words, the miraculous things are authentication that what I'm telling you is true. Verse 34, For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand. It was a prophecy of David of the coming Messiah. Until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both what? Lord and Christ. The word Lord means supreme authority. The name Christ means the anointed Savior who would come. 
Peter effectively says, you are not part of Christ's body if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never asked Jesus to save you. Do not pretend any longer. Don't play the game. You come to church for a reason. Why would you waste an hour for a goober like me to yell at you? And not trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. What's the point of coming to church? Why play the game? It seems silly. And what Peter is driving home here is, look, if you want to be part of the body, if you want to be part of that formed body, you must be saved. By the way, it's an interesting statement when we look in the Old Testament. What did God say to the prophet Jeremiah? He said, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew you. Christ knows who will become part of his church. Christ calls us to become part of his church. And if you will receive that call to salvation, even today, you may be saved. The second is a baptism. It's not just believers, but it's baptism. And baptism is a first step of obedience, I put there in your notes. We keep reading in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? I don't want to go to hell. I want to be saved. I want this salvation. Peter said unto them, Repent. And not only repent, show it outwardly. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward or this wicked and perverse generation. Verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. They were saved baptized, and then the Bible says, in the same day they were added unto them. Who is the them here? The same them that Jesus is praying about in John 17, the church, about 3,000 souls. Peter's answer in verses 37 through 41 is both sequential and succinct. Church, my friend, isn't hard. It is salvation by turning from sin to Christ. Then sanctification begins immediately by you outwardly demonstrating your faith in Christ by going through the waters of baptism. The third aspect that we find in Acts chapter 2 is that there is a building of our core values brings strength or growth. Verse 42 in chapter 2 continues, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear, reverence, and respect came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men and as, as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Hallelujah. The ultimate effect of that church being strengthened and built is that they were praising God and had favor with all the people. God says after that, and the Lord added daily such as should be saved at the end of that last verse. Doctrine, fellowship, communion, and prayer. As a church body, we have done these since the day we began. The church is not formed around entertainment. It's not who can play the guitar the best or who can sing the loudest or who can drum the best solo. It is not about making you or even me happy. It is not about intelligence. It is about Christ and Christ alone. That's the church. It is formed from the head. Church is built around the teaching from God's word. Everything that we do, ladies' meetings, men's Bible studies, 
My goodness, next Saturday morning, a bunch of us hillbillies are going to go shoot guns at Jamie and Min Young's house. But even then, there will be a sharing of a Bible verse and prayer, and then we'll blow half of a hillside away. It's because the Bible's important. This life is not lived for us. It is lived for Him. We don't run a church to make you happy. Some of you are thinking, I know, this might be your last Sunday. Might be. But we do try to have every time you come in these doors of this place, and wherever this church ever calls home, and heaven knows in 15 years we've called four different places home. Finally, this is not our final resting place, but this is our for now resting place. Every time you come into a service, we try to give you something that is both tangible and robust about who God is about what Christ has accomplished, and how you can deepen your relationship with God and others. The body is formed, but that body that is formed must become what? Letter B, functional. I love driving to church. We come across Johnson Mill and down Crumball to come to church every Sunday morning or every day to work for me. And I love it when it's folding season and those little ones are just out there and they've got their little knobby knees and they don't look like they can walk very well. But, you know, that's really a good picture of the church. We're born and we have to start walking pretty quick. Church has to be functional. I can remember in the earliest days of the church, I ever wondered if we would last. I remember the first Wednesday night, August 10th, so that would have been August 14th. We were getting ready, or 13th, maybe it was was date-wise today. We were getting ready for church on a Wednesday afternoon, and Jessica said, if it's just me that comes to church with you tonight, are you going to preach? I said, yeah, baby, you need it. (laughs) I'm I'm kidding, I did not say that to her. The health of the body is that the body is used. I've learned now in my late 40s what a day of healthy activity can do for the body. It's good for the body to move and be active. I also know what sitting idly for a day will do to the body. Body is designed to be active, functioning. A church, therefore, as the body of Christ, must be active and growing. Growth for a church... Uh, always follows a biblical pattern. I have believed and I've taught since I planted this church, this is the pattern of growth for a body, spiritual growth. We do not focus on just drawing a crowd. Let's get as many people in here as we can. Bless God, let's have us a giveaway. Let's run us a raffle. Let's have a bingo night. We don't do that. What we focus on is let's grow spiritually each person that attends this place. That's why every Sunday morning I take meticulous time, hopefully, to go from the Word of God what you should know about life. Spiritual growth, we determined, I I believe from the Word of God, leads to numeric growth, which that numeric growth then produces financial growth in the church, which ends in physical growth. We started in the basement of the Cardome. I'll never forget when we started in the basement of the Cardome. Every Saturday night, I had a pile driver, and I was driving in the post so that I could wire up the sign that says, Welcome to Bluegrass. And those, and I'm going to have to be careful, there is another church in town of another denomination that decided after three or two months in that place that they were going to start a church with the same name Bluegrass, just not Baptist Church. 
And they had a lot more money than us. And they started on the first floor. We could only afford the basement. And I remember going home the first night they met. Because somebody came downstairs and said, is this bluegrass such and such denomination? And one of our church members said, no, uh, I don't know. Oh, they must meet upstairs. And I'm telling you, the devil attacked us from day one. But God is greater than he. As a church, there is always going to be growth. No child is born and stays an infant. That infant must grow into his functional life that God has intended for him. The church should be growing, and thank goodness we have. By my question this morning on this anniversary is, will we continue? Paul makes a profound statement to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, beginning there. He says, and he gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And I'm summarizing that verse but, but because I just want to say this. Those people, those offices are given to you, the church. In other words, as a pastor, I'm like a Christmas present that sits under the tree. And you might say, well, that's a pretty arrogant thought of yourself. No, it's not. The, the gift doesn't know any better. It can only perform its function. Right. It can only do what it's given to do. And as a pastor, all I am called to do, all that I can do, is come into your life and function in that way. So he says he gave some apostles, some pastors, some teachers. What purpose did he give them? What function? What does he want to produce? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. In other words, my function is to make sure you function. That the body is able to go. He goes on and says, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, until we grow up and become mature, that we henceforth be no more children, just little itty-bitty ones, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of man or the tricks of man and their cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. And may I say there's a lot of people that say they're churches that are lying in the weeds to deceive you, I promise. I've watched it now for 15 years. For us, he pivots, but speaking the truth in love, that body may grow up into him, Christ, in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom, from Christ, the whole body fitly joined together or put in its proper place and compacted. That word compacted has the idea of making cookies. When you put the flour and you put the egg yolk in and you put the blender together, all of those things become one thing. That's what Jesus wants to do with us being put together as a body this morning. By that which every joint, every one of you supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. Each of you is critical to the success of this place. The moment people in a church stop thinking they're important to the church, the church begins to become dead. It's necrotic. Life has gone out of that member. And it's no different than a pinky or a toe that needs to be removed from the body because it's become gangrene. And the point is, is that you are critical to the functioning of the body. He goes on and finishes by saying, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself. That last statement, keep it there for me if you guys will in the back. That last statement is essential. Notice how it starts. As the pastor, my job is to make sure that we're functioning optimally. 
the best that we can. But by the time the body grows up, where I think we are at age 15, the body itself can begin to do what? Edify itself. It itself can build one another. Oh, man, how many men and then women within our church are skilled students of the Bible who are also skilled teachers of the Bible? We've been blessed. In the early days, there was at one point in our church family six or seven retired pastors. You know what my joke was back then? It's because I was so stupid. God's like, well, I'm going to put a bunch of these really smart guys around you because you're a a bit of a rockhead, Kyle. You, You don't know that much. But I actually believe, in all seriousness, throughout the years, those multiple teachers, preachers, people within the church who are able to rightly divide the word of truth and to communicate that truth are a fulfillment of this passage. Jesus prayed that we would be one with the Father and with Him. Because we are his formed and functional body in this present age that is to be sent out into the world. Next, we find that the church is Christ's building. In 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 9, Paul would write this, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Now, I don't have a B for husbandry, so we're not going to deal with it today. You're welcome. If I had a B, I could deal with it. But the point is, you are part of Christ's vine, John 15, and we'll leave that teaching for that. But for the B, the very next one, he says, ye are God's building. A building is made up of many different parts. But each part is critical. To build a worthy building, one must use proper methods. Letter A. The very next verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Bible says this, According to the grace of God which is given unto me, that's Paul, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another man buildeth thereon. But let every man, every man, woman, boy and girl that's a member of this church, take heed or be aware, pay attention, how you actively build thereon, buildeth thereon. A church must be built, my friend, from the bottom up. The foundation that is laid is Jesus Christ. No other foundation can be laid, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. A church is not built from the top down. The moment a pastor becomes a king in a congregation, you should leave that body because it's not healthy anymore. Christ is the head, not the pastor. There will come a day where I will no longer stand in this desk. I've been here for 15 years. The average pastor lasts in a church three and a half. You say, are you done? I'm not done yet. I don't think so. If I go 15 more years, I'll be 62. 62, wow. If I go another 30 years, I'll be 77. That means there's going to come a day where there's somebody else that stands in this desk. So this church is not dependent upon me. It's dependent upon Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. The goal within the church, then, for each of the building blocks should be that we serve our function to God and to one another as part of the building. Galatians 5 and verse 13, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love, he says, what? Serve one another. The pastors of a place should serve. The staff of the place should serve. The deacons in a church should serve. Every member of a church should serve. That is the goal. 100% of the membership completely sold out to serving God in and through their lives. Then we are a building that Paul says can hold forth the truth. We are the pillar and ground of truth, he writes to his son in the faith, Timothy. 
It's an interesting comparison to what Paul is saying here about building the church to what Nehemiah actually did in building the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah's rebuilding of Jerusalem is the picture that we should have in mind of how I play my part in this place. Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 17, the Bible says this, Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in. May I say to you, Nehemiah looked at those Israelites and said, This place is a mess. We as a church come together and we recognize that our county, our commonwealth, our country, and the whole world, if we want another C, it's the cosmos, it is a living mess. This world is racked with sin. It's everywhere. Sin should not be in this place. Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, he says, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we be no more a reproach. How many of us can stop and honestly, please do not nod your head or smile, but just internally think, you know churches that you used to be part of or that you used to know that are a reproach to the name of Christ. Oh, I pray that never happens to this church. Nehemiah goes on, Then I told them of the hand of my God which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me, And they said, their response was, let's get the job done. Let's get busy. Let's do something about it. Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. When the opposition comes in verse number 19, Nehemiah moves in verse 20 to say this, Then answered I them, that opposition, and said unto them, those who oppose the work of God, those who oppose the building of those walls, those who might oppose the building of His church, the God of heaven, He will prosper us. Therefore we as servants will arise and build. But ye, ye opponents of the Lord's work, ye have no portion. You've got no right. You have no memorial in Jerusalem. What Paul wrote to the Corinthians of building the church is nearly identical to what Nehemiah established then in Nehemiah chapter 3. We won't take time to read it, but here's the point. From gate to gate and portion to portion, Nehemiah went about in Nehemiah 3, setting each family on the work of the wall. And every family said, I know what I can do. This is what I'm going to do. That's what the church needs. There is a method, not to the madness, but of the majesty of what God is doing in this church. Every home built the walls of Jerusalem. Every home needs to build the work of bluegrass. There are no passive people in the work of God. All of our work may look different. Each of us will have different skills, different talents, and different gifts. But the work itself of church, coming to a complete stature and standing with God, is what we're driving towards here. That's why every Sunday I try to challenge you to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a method to building God's church, and friend, you have a significant part to play in it. Then second, there is a ministry. What is it actually trying to do? What is this building doing? It's holding forth truth, we're told. What does a building do? Well, a building glorifies the name of the builder. The builder is then... Jesus Christ, he's the head. And that builder rewards those diligent workers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, down in verse number 12, Paul says this, Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, and what he does in that verse is he gives us two different categories. 
you are a qualified worker or a disqualified worker. He goes on and he says, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because that shall be revealed by fire. Far too many churches have become filled with people who think they pay the staff to do the Lord's work. The Lord's work, my friend, is for all of us to do. All of us. Ye are God's building, he says. I heard someone once say to me, Pastor, if I'm part of the building, this is about a decade ago, someone said this to me in private, that I must be the doormat. I stopped and I thought on that for a while. I thought somebody has to be. Not because I was mocking them, but I thought in my head. Mary was a doormat, and with her tears she wiped the feet of Jesus. King David, who we regale in all of his glory, said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. Let's stop worrying about what part of the building we are and just be part of it. Every part of this spiritual building is fashioned in Christ, just as every part is fitly joined together in the body. Finally, this morning, the church is Christ's bride. The whole church, the universal church from the present age is the bride of Christ. Here's how it will look when it greets Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19 and verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, that's to Christ. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife, that's you and I, hath made herself ready. And to her, to that wife, to that bride, to that church, was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. Why? Look at the next verse, or the next line. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Can I tell you something this morning? How you live your life matters. I often wonder in that eternal state what disappointments there will be in the apparel that we have. You've got one life. You got one life. I had to come to that point. When I was working at the Pentagon, there were two events in my life that changed the direction of my life. When I was working there, it was 9-11 was one of them, a public event, and then a private event that I had to come to a moral decision, an ethical and biblical decision on. And those two things God used for me to say no to that life and yes to a life of service to Christ. Because I came to the point of, why am I doing this? What's the point? What's this life worth? That's what the bride must ask herself. That is universally true, but it's also locally true. In 2 Corinthians 11, in verse 2, Paul says this, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I, that's Paul the pastor, have espoused you to one husband. If I may, my job as a pastor is to bring together this bride Sunday after Sunday, service after service, time after time, and counseling after counseling, and to get you ready as a chaste virgin. To Christ, he concludes. That's my job. That's what I've tried to do for 15 years. And for however many years God gives me at this place, it's what I will always try to do, is to get you ready to meet your maker and your savior. What a statement from Paul. What then is the bride to do? This is going to be tough, and I don't want to get in too much trouble. But letter A, the bride is to be beautiful. 
how many of you women, on the day that you got married, decided to come with your mascara running, no lipstick, and your hair still in curlers? Any of you? Any? None? None of you did that? None at all? I mean, all the weddings that I've done as a pastor, I've never seen a girl come in here and say, well, it's all I had in my closet. <laughs> I've never seen it once. Why? What does a bride want to do? She wants to make herself as beautifully presentable to her groom as she can be. Oh, that's so patriarchal. I can't believe you're so archaic. Really? If you believe that, good luck on your wedding day. If I do your wedding, I'll laugh along with you. (laughs) I guess I was right. Friends, every good husband only sees his wife's beauty. Now, let me state that again. Every good husband only sees his wife's beauty. Every good wife wants to be as beautiful as she can be for her husband. John's revelation could not be more clear about what makes the bride of Christ, the church, beautiful. And to her was granted, if you'll recall, he says, that she should be arrayed in fine linen and white for or because the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Those saints, we of this church and every local church in this world, are trying to prepare themselves to meet our groom. Well, think about that the next time you say, you know what, God doesn't care. I'm just going to engage in this sin. You're filthy. And God has none of it. Paul actually explains it this way in Ephesians 5 and verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it, that is, his wife, his church, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. It should be beautiful to him. He says, the beauty of the church is found in willful obedience to his commands and the open expression of his grace to others. The church should not be a place filled with sin. Things that God calls wrong are wrong. I often hear people say, I don't want to be part of a legalistic church. I don't either. But it doesn't mean the church then can be filled up with your sinful behaviors. As it pertains to openly showing grace, listen to what Paul says to the, first, to the Galatians in the first ten verses of Galatians 6. Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted, or lest you fall yourself into that same sin. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not another. For every man has to or shall bear his own burden. Even when those come to help, you're still stuck with the life you've got. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, opportunity to do what? Show God's grace to others. Let us do good unto all men. Especially to whom? Those who are of the household of faith. It is living in 
and by God's grace that we fulfill the law of Christ. When you live graciously, you will never need worry about living legally. If you just focus on living graciously. This is our beauty. Not that I need to climb in this pulpit week after week and yell at you that you're sinners. No. Rather, the beauty of the church is that you and I both can recognize our own sinfulness and seek God's restoration and renewal from that sinfulness. That's grace. That's why Titus is told by Paul, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. Where? In this present world. Why? Because we're looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's who we're looking for. He gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity, to purify unto Himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. His bride is to be beautiful, my friend. And that is your responsibility. But she is also to be bountiful, our last thought this morning. Two words I think of, compassion and commission. That means that we are to see compassion, those in their need, and we are to share with them. We're told to go out and preach, teach, and heal, or to share that therapeutic approach of Christ with the world. Compassion means that we see those who are hurting We want to enter their lives and render assistance. Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. We are to see the same way. We are to physically go beyond the bubble of our own world and see people in their need. Do you? Or are you only aware of your own need? The church must never lose focus of what our mission is. We are Christ's bride. The Bible tells us that the purpose of a male and a female, not its only purpose, but its chief purpose, is to... Be fruitful and multiply. That is true in the physical realm when Adam and Eve were created. And we as the bride of Christ to our groom Jesus are to go out and to reproduce as well spiritually. That means new converts. It also means someday new churches planted out of ours. We must never lose focus of what our mission is. We must engage in compassion. In closing this morning, what is a church then? Well, hopefully, we could also say what we've been about for the last 15 years. Bluegrass, as a body, is formed and functioning. Bluegrass, as a building, is engaged in the methods and ministry that is necessary to make us effective and useful. And as a bride, we are both beautiful, though I'm sure there's sinners in here, just like the one who's speaking to you, and bountiful. We have grown. Let me show that picture if I can. These are the crazy people that decided to help start this church. (laughs) Not all of them are still here. A good number of them are. Mike, uh, the guy on the far right standing next to Brian Watson, Mike was the first guy saved here and the first guy ever baptized in this church. Mike Strong, wonderful guy. I don't know what Jason's looking at. He's probably distracted. He wasn't looking at the camera, though. It's pretty typical. All right, you can take that off, Melanie. To those who have been added to those initial 12 who were charter members in December of 2008, we're the body, we're the building, and we're the Christ. Let me, if I may, exit the sermon today on a personal note. I don't usually do this. 
I usually try to keep it very professional, very pastoral. There have been something like 3,000 visitors over our 15-year history. You say, exactly something like that. It's, it's close to that. There have been 500 members collectively of this place, and presently there's about 268 members of this church. Every person who's ever come to this place, Jessica and I view them as a gift from God. And I mean every person. The Spirit of God has led you here for a reason. Fifteen years ago, on our first service, we had 172 people. Most of those were a bunch of my kinfolk from the hollers of Kentucky that came out and said, I can't believe he actually survived his childhood. On the second Sunday, we had 12. All of our family that we had known went home. Went home. And Jessica and I set out to do the work of God here. And truthfully, we didn't know how. (laughs) We did the best that we could with the book that we've been given. This is the only thing that helps you in life. So we didn't know how to do it. We just trusted what the Bible said. I never doubted, though, that God wanted a church planted here in Georgetown. I knew that he wanted one that would preach Christ, that would reach the lost, that would grow believers into disciples, and that ultimately, I believe, can change the world. Not every day has been easy, but every day has been blessed from God. I'm thankful as well that God has always blessed in directing this place because I am not a qualified pastor. I didn't go to seminary. I was kicked out of Bible college. It's not like the top thing you put on your resume when you're planting a church. Some of you are now reconsidering your membership, I understand. While I may not be qualified as a pastor, I do hope that I am one that's serious about God's work. God loved me enough that he died to rescue me from a life that was purposeless. I figured many years ago the least that I can do is serve him with the life that I have left. On one hand, 15 years after starting Bluegrass, it is far easier now... I don't have to worry about what Jessica and I will eat from week to week. There's a time, I didn't share this in the early service, and I wanted to share it here because they're not here, and I knew it would embarrass them. There was a time early in our church's history where Jessica and I literally had nothing. We had nothing in the refrigerator. And Mike and Jerry showed up at church and said, Well, we just got back from Wisconsin, and we have this big package of meat. And I was like, Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. I was in year three. The church started paying me a salary in earnest in year four. I mean, the church has always done us very well. They've been very blessed. I don't have to worry today about how I clothe my kids because God has grown you, not me. He's grown you as a church to understand that a part of being a church is caring for those that minister within it. I can tell you from planting a church... I know what Jesus means when he says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus wonderfully says, Therefore, take no thought for the morrow. 
or for your life, I should say, what you shall eat or what you, what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. We know that. Is not life more than meat? And the answer is, for us, it certainly has been these last 15 years. There's no greater joy than to know that you're in the very center of God's will. That joy is then enhanced when you are confident that your wife is 100% on board with you. My hope as a dad is that my boys understand why their mom and dad do not pursue, pursue earthly gain. But we want to actively pursue God's kingdom. That's hard. I have boys that are wonderful young men. And I think God's going to do great things through them if they're accountants, doctors, pharmacists. One of them wants to be a trash truck driver, and that's fine. We don't care what God does in their life. We just want them to be faithful to Him. Our kind, gracious, and benevolent God has blessed Jessica and I more than we could ever imagine. We have a spiritually healthy church. We're not perfect. I just preached that to you this morning. I'm sorry. <laughs> but we are spiritually healthy. That means we hunger and thirst after righteousness. We have an open door of opportunity to impact our community because you all are engaged in it. And we have friends within us, church, that are closer to us than family. On the other hand, shepherding sometimes gets hard. There are struggles. I cannot take your cancer away. I cannot hurt, or heal the hurts of emotional distress and loss when someone dies. And as a pastor, those are burdens that I carry for you, but I can't take them away from you. There is wickedness that I see as a pastor everywhere around us. I'm torn on that. It has to get very wicked before Jesus comes back. And so I'm okay with that fact, but I don't want it to seep into your lives. I'm the under-shepherd that the chief shepherd will ask, why didn't you help that sheep? The one constant that I have, I've done since day one, is that I try to pray for each of you. It is getting much harder the bigger we get. It was a lot easier when there was 12 of you. There are times I close my door in my office during the day. Miss Kathy will print me a list of every home and the children in that home. And the staff thinks I'm sleeping. But I will sit at my desk and I will pray for you. Because some of you are hurting in ways that I can't fix. But God can. I believe this with all my heart. A strong spiritual man can overcome physical difficulties and emotional despair. I'm convinced of that. That's what the Bible teaches us. I can say this in final word. Pastoring today is a lot different than what I imagined when I started. When we moved here July 14th of 2008 and took three weeks preparing to plant the church, I had no idea. I thought we'd last 15 minutes. But it has been one of the greatest blessings of my life. What God has built here is a body, a building, and a bride for His glory. I hope you're always a part of it. The psalmist says this in closing, Psalm 66 and verse 8, O bless our, 
O bless our God, ye people, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, which holdeth, notice this next statement, it's one of the best in the Bible, which holdeth our soul in life, and suffereth not our feet to be moved. Father, I thank you for this wonderful church.